Today I continue in the series that I have been in for a few weeks now. It's a series I'm calling Grace, the Undiluted Gospel. And I'm going to add the fourth message to this series today as I minister for a little while through a message I'm calling Grace, the Breath of Life. Friends, may I have the privilege, may I take this great pleasure in reminding us once again, I said it I think in the first message, our embellishments, that means our decorations, our accessories, our garnishings added to Jesus' finished work of grace are nothing more than simply graffiti. Friends, Jesus may have died on a tree, but it wasn't a Christmas tree that needs our decorations. The gospel of grace is absolutely breathtaking apart from our interior decorating skills. The thought of decorating the cross with my pitiful tinsel and my pitiful string of lights and ornaments is nauseating, to be honest with you. Likewise, when the mixture gospel is preached, you know what it does? It devalues the sacrifice of Jesus and it undermines the one true gospel. When the mixture gospel is preached, it power washes the cross of its blood. I don't care how dirty and grimy something is, a power washer will make it look absolutely clean. And I don't want a clean cross. The cross that I'm aware of, the cross that Jesus died on, is a blood-stained, blood-soaked cross. But when we add our pitiful works to Jesus' finished work, you know what it does? It power washes the cross of its blood. You say, Pastor Mark, I don't understand. I hear you talking about this. Could you go through this one more time with me? Could you please just help me on this journey one more time? Help me understand what you mean when you say mixture gospel. What is the mixture gospel? And I've asked the Lord to help me to make this as plain because so many people are under the mixture gospel and they don't even realize that that's where they're stuck at. No condemnation, friends. I was there at one time too, and I'm sure there's still some mixture in me. We are kind of a work in process, and I get it. But in short, the mixture gospel is when we take the old covenant and we take the new covenant and then we blend them together, we shuffle them together. Now, if you insist on having both, then fine. If you insist on mixing the two covenants together, then I have both good news for you and I have some not so good news for you. The good news is that you're not going to lose your salvation. Why? because it is a finished work. So after you come to Christ, if you insist on obeying the Ten Commandments to be right with Him, if you insist on following the 613 Jewish written codes, then fine, okay? But Because you're already in Christ. You've already been sealed by His blood. So you're not going to lose your salvation. But the bad news part of this part is, is that you might lose your peace. So many believers today, their peace is so intermittent. It's there one moment and it's fleeting the next. It's here and then gone. So you might not lose your salvation, but you might lose your peace. You might lose your joy. Uh, you might lose your courage. And I'll be frank with you, you might lose your mind. Would you like to take a guess how many people today are in the psychiatric ward? And if you interviewed them, the majority of them that are there would say that they are there because they have committed the unpardonable sin. The majority would say that I've committed the unpardonable sin. And the question becomes always, and I've heard it asked so many times, can a believer commit the unpardonable sin? The answer is unequivocally no. You cannot commit the unpardonable sin. So what is the unpardonable sin? It's just rejection of Christ. He knocks on your door like you see in the picture there. You keep saying no. He keeps knocking, you keep saying no, and you die in your sins. That's the unpardonable sin because there's nothing left in the grave to save you. He offers salvation now. He's knocking now. Come now is his plea. So they can't lose their salvation, but they can lose their mind. And much of this has to do with the mixture gospel because they reach back under the old covenant they see the way it worked at one time, that it was a performance standard. It was a do good, get good, do bad, get beaten standard. It was get punished if you did wrong. It was falling under the curse. And so when you reach back there and you bring that old covenant mindset into the new covenant reality that we're in today, can you see how that would cause some confusion? 
Come on, you guys have all been there at one time, so you understand how that works. Let me ask you a question. Now, if you were out of milk, would it be okay to use a half a cup of white paint to make your breakfast smoothie? Thank you, Jim. I just might leave that in there on the, on the tape. The internet audience will believe at least one person in my church said no. I'm going to ask it again. If you were out of milk, would you use white paint as the substitute for making your breakfast smoothie? Of course not. Because if we understood how toxic, how inedible, how repulsive, and how disrespectful it is to the cross of Christ to mix the old covenant with the new covenant, then you know what we would do? We'd fall on our floor in tears, in repentance, and we would say, God, forgive me for even thinking like that, for even believing like that. But the problem is that many believers either cannot see, or they do not see, or in some cases, they just refuse to see the truth. They hold tight to their indoctrinations and refuse to let go of the old covenant practices. I'm talking about the covenant that does not contain breath. There is no breath in the old covenant. No breath whatsoever. Mixing the old covenant with the new covenant is as confusing as swapping the game instructions from shoots and ladders with the game instructions of Monopoly and then trying to play both of those games. You would have hopeless confusion on your hands. And you know what you would do? You would just make things up as you went. You'd have no other choice. And unfortunately, that's what we've done in the church. We've just made things up as we've went. We've preached them as doctrine. And we stay stuck in this old mindset. Friends, you can give chest compressions to a CPR dummy until the cows come home. And I'm going to tell you something. It will remain unresponsive. And you can breathe all day long into the nostrils of a clothing store mannequin, but it will never come to life. In the same exact manner, there is zero life in the Old Covenant. There is no life in the Old Covenant. In fact, the Apostle Paul would write that the Old Covenant was the ministry of death, not the ministry of breath. So don't you think we ought to pay attention if the Apostle Paul is writing such language? He said the Old Covenant is a ministry of death. The Old Covenant law is a ministry of death. Breath is found in Jesus Christ alone. That's where we get our breath. That's where we get our joy. That's where we get our peace. That's where we get our courage. That's where we get our life. That's where our mind gets renewed. The Old Covenant law was made obsolete through the shed blood of Jesus Christ once for all. Come on, it was once for all. Yet many in the body of Christ look to the old covenant. You know what they look for? Chest compressions because they feel like their heart's failing. Puffs of air because they get the wind knocked out of them by fear. And so they're looking to the wrong source. It's insanity, friends. Friends, looking to the old covenant law to satisfy your heart is as crazy as a starving man looking to a bowl full of marbles to satisfy his hunger. Both are empty calories and twisted logic. <laughs> Wouldn't that be ridiculous? I mean, I don't know. I've been hungry a few times in life. How about you guys? Where you can hear your belly talking to you. I went on a fast one time. This was right when I first got saved. And I was driving down the road at 55 miles an hour with the windows down in, in the van I was in and the radio blaring. And I was so hungry, I could hear my stomach rattling over the wind and the radio and everything and the road noise and everything. So how many of you have been so hungry at one time in your life, so famished that you said, man, I could just about eat anything right now, right? Well, imagine someone sliding you a bowl of marbles. He said, well, you don't have to chew them, just swallow them. I don't know if once you took up that space in your stomach, if those marbles would make you feel full or not. But I'm telling you, no matter what happens there, it is zero calories. It is an empty victory. There is no life in that. There is no life in the old covenant. There's no life whatsoever. 
zero life craziness. May I remind us that the first breath mentioned in the Bible came by grace, the breath of life. It was the breath that God breathed into the man while he lay on his back on the floor of the garden. That was the first breath of life. Let me ask you a question. Did man deserve God's breath? He's just a hunk of clay. Did he do anything to warrant to deserve God's breath? Come on, not a trick question. The answer is no. Did man participate in the inflation of his lungs? Come on. No, he couldn't. He's dead. You see, friends, that's what grace is. Grace is the breath of God to undeserving human beings. Why? Because he loves us. It's the breath of God to undeserving human beings apart from their help. Adam didn't help. You see, after God fashioned Adam from the dust of the ground, you know what? Adam lay there like a CPR dummy. Adam lay there like a clothing store mannequin. Lifeless. No ability whatsoever to embellish God's handiwork. No toxic smoothies to drink. No tote of Christmas tree decorations to put up. No graffiti to scribble over God's finished creation. It was God's work alone. That's a pretty easy picture to get in your head, isn't it? Adam was lifeless. Adam didn't help. It was God that got his hands dirty. It was God that was so thoughtful and kind. It was God that tipped his head back and pinched his nose if he did it that way. I don't know. I have breathed into a CPR dummy before. And, and God breathed into him the breath of life. God made Adam alive by grace, the breath of life. Friends, Jesus, I said, is our breath of life. Even the old covenant got its breath from God. But Jesus would exhale the old covenant in his final breath on the cross. And during the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the old covenant was left in the grave as lifeless as a CPR dummy and as motionless as a clothing store mannequin. You say, Pastor Mark, how do you know that Jesus exhaled the old covenant in his final breath from the cross? Because breath is about covenant. And when Jesus breathed his last breath, we were under an old covenant. We weren't alive physically at the time, but everybody alive at that time was under an old covenant. It was the only covenant that was available. When Jesus breathed on his disciples, he was breathing his covenant of the Holy Spirit into their lungs. The abiding Holy Spirit. The Spirit who's promised to stay with us forever. And on resurrection day, the Father would roll away the stone. I'm sure it made a little bit of noise there in the early morning hours. And He would breathe the Spirit back into Jesus' lifeless body. And in that moment, Jesus would take a breath. He would inhale. And as he exhaled, he would release the new covenant of grace, the breath of life. The old covenant had been rendered obsolete at that moment. It lay in the tomb like a clothing store mannequin, and it's been motionless ever since. The only breath it has is the breath that people keep trying to give it, friends. When I speak about the new covenant of grace, the breath of life, I'm talking about the covenant that would be anything unlike Israel or Judah had ever experienced. The covenant that does not remember sins. I'm talking about the covenant that remains faithful. Aren't you glad? Even when we are faithless, that, that kind of covenant. I'm talking about the covenant that takes us by the hand and not by the hair. Come on, it does. The covenant that does not find fault with us. Have you ever had anybody pick on you? They just always, every little thing you do, they've got some sort of negative comment. They've got some sort of negative fault-finding thing about it. Aren't you glad that you're under a covenant that does not find fault with you? He sees you as innocent and pure and faultless, friends. I'm talking about the covenant that took us out of Egypt 
once and for all. Friends, I'm talking about the covenant that made the first covenant obsolete, the covenant that comes by grace, the breath of life. In Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 through 13, we find these words. Now, I find this so interesting because look how it opens up. It says, for if that first covenant Now, that's the covenant we've been talking about, this old covenant. And it says, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for another covenant. Now, I want to stop here for just a second. Because the scriptures are inferring in a way, kind of a hidden way, that there must have been something wrong with the first covenant. It didn't say that. It's saying if there would have been a problem. But because we know another covenant came, And it's already said if there had been no problem, no fault with the first covenant, there would have been no reason to take it away. So now we know, because we know the end of the story, there must have been some sort of problem over here, right? It says, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for another covenant. And then it says, for God found fault with the people. Now, it doesn't say God found fault with the covenant. Just stay with me here. It says, God found fault with the people and said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. Aren't you so happy? Come on. Aren't you happy that when you're unfaithful that God doesn't turn away from you, right? Why did God do something like that? Because it was part of his covenant with them. It was the covenant that they asked for. It was the covenant they insisted on. It was the covenant that they demanded from God. And so God is just being a covenant keeper here. That's all. It's not his heart to turn away from anybody, but it was part of the covenant. And aren't you glad we serve a God that we know a God, we're in touch with a God who keeps his covenant, gives us great hope. And then he says, this is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I love this part. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. Look at these next words now, friends. For I will forgive their wickedness. Come on. We don't get to use that word too often, do we? You got to be really bad for that word. God didn't say, I'm going to forgive their jaywalking. God didn't say, I'm going to forgive their misdemeanor stuff. He said, I'm going to forgive their wickedness. Friends, he has reached deep down in the trench as low as you can go. I could name some names. You'd recognize all the names of people that have been so low throughout society. But I'm not going to go there. But you can see God's heart. He says, I will forgive their wickedness. And I love this next part. And will remember their sins no more. What is this promise attached to? This promise is attached to a covenant that is coming. It's attached to a covenant that's down the road a little ways. And then he says, by calling this covenant new, look at these words. He has made the first one obsolete. I wish the church would just meditate on that for a few minutes. Come on. He has made that first covenant obsolete because when I had to start meditating on that scripture, he made the first covenant obsolete. Then I had to go, whoa, wait a minute now. You made a covenant obsolete? What was in the covenant? Because if you made it obsolete, that means I can't get parts for it anymore. What was in the covenant? Because I'm running around like a crazy man trying to obey everything in that first covenant to be right with my daddy. And I realized this is not necessary. He's already made it obsolete, it says. And then it says, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. And it did. There was a generation that was living, and that's what he was talking about it. When you guys are all gone and dead, the generations coming up will realize that there is a new covenant. They'll be taught that there's a new covenant. Unfortunately, what happens, though, is you still have people teaching the old covenant, and then you have other ones teaching the new covenant, and we don't know what to believe. It's all rolling around in our head like those marbles that you ate earlier. But that's what happens, friends. I want to ask you a couple of questions about these scriptures. 
Did these verses open with God finding fault with the first covenant? Now, you don't have to answer out loud. Did they open with God finding fault with the first covenant? Well, there's certainly enough conjecture to arrive at that conclusion because, again, we know the end of the story. Because it opened with, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for another covenant. In other words, how many of you are familiar with the old saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it? Come on, you ever said that? We've all said that, right? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. It's about the only time we get to use that word ain't. We don't say if it isn't broke. We just say if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? And so the fact of the matter is, God did fix it. He did more than just fix it, though, friends. He scrapped it all together. He didn't just repair it. He didn't just service it. He didn't refurbish it. He didn't clean it up. He scrapped it all together. Let me ask you another question. What was wrong with the first covenant? Well, you'll be surprised to know that there was actually nothing wrong with the first covenant. Its only fault was that it was missing sufficient provision for the forgiveness of sin. I said, Lord, give me a couple of ways to explain this to the people. If you were to take the wheels off of a brand new car, in fact, I just saw one on the internet yesterday that sold for $160 million. Take that car, for example. 1950s Mercedes, one of a kind. Only two were ever made and none were ever sold. And finally, one sold. Take that car and take the wheels off that car and set it on cement blocks. Guess what? The engine will still start. The wipers will still work. The windows will still roll down. The heat will work. The air conditioner will work. The radio will still work. However, it would be missing sufficient provision to take me from one place to another. Do you see that? Nothing wrong with the car in its form sitting there. Nothing wrong with it. Everything that's there is perfect. But it's missing what I need to take me from one place to another. Or imagine for a moment an uncirculated, fresh from the mint, $100 bill put in your hands. Never been touched by another human being. Perfect right out of the mint. Yet if your rent is $500 and that's the only $100 bill you have, that's the only money you have, do you see how it lacks sufficient provision for you? Nothing wrong with that first covenant, but it lacks sufficient provision to take us to where daddy really wanted to take us. Even though it's perfect, it lacked perfect provision to meet our needs. Friends, the first covenant was missing sufficient provision of grace the first covenant could not take away sin once for all the first covenant was the precursor of the gospel of grace the breath of life that's all it is hebrews chapter 10 and verses 1 through 4 we find these words the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming not the realities themselves for this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? He said, look, if your offering, your worship could have made you perfect once and for all, he said, then there would have been no need for an additional sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ. For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all, and would have no longer felt guilty for their sins. Friends, we got to get over this guilt stuff. we got to get beyond this shame stuff. See, guilty can last for sometimes several hours, several days, whatever it may be, and then you step over into shame. And do you know that some people will wear shame for a lifetime for a single incident, a single mishap, a single misjudgment? They will wear that shame for a lifetime. Sometimes people have been so traumatized, they'll wear fear to the grave for decades and decades, and they'll be afraid of everything. People will wear condemnation all their lives. And so what it's telling us here is if those sins could have been taken away once and for all, the worshipers 
if they had been cleansed once for all, would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. Now, when I do something or say something or think something that I think I could have done better there, there would have been a time in my life I would have carried that guilt. I would have just beat myself up for many days. And then I think you just kind of forget about it. And if it's high profile enough, it takes months, maybe years to get rid of it. Friends, we are so clean in Christ. We are so pure in Christ. We just in those moments have to say, Daddy, help me to do better in these situations. I'll get another opportunity and hopefully my response will be different. Daddy, take the residue of condemnation that's in me. Take the residue of guilt, shame, and fear that's in me and remove it by the blood of Jesus Christ. Help me to see how innocent, help me to see how pure I am in your eyes. For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But it says those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. That's what they did. They reminded you of your sins. And then I love how it says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Impossible. So the blood of bulls and goats never really took away sins. How do you know? Look at the scriptures. It covered you. It cleansed your conscience. But it never took away the sin. So what are these scriptures telling us? That under the old covenant, a man had to make an annual appointment for chest compressions and puffs of air. That there was no such thing as a once-for-all cleansing. These scriptures are telling us that God's worshipers lived in a constant state of guilt. They're telling us that the sacrifices of bulls and goats were insufficient to take away sin and the sacrifices that could make the worshipers perfect. The old covenant was insufficient in the provision of grace, the very breath of life. It's what gave you life. It's what gave me life. His grace breathed into my heart. His grace breathed into my lungs. His grace breathed into my mind. It's what's brought me peace and joy. So, what did the Father do in this conundrum that man was in? How is the Father going to respond? Does He just give us more chest compressions? Does He just give us more puffs of air? You know, when our check engine light comes on? Friends, do you know how many people's check engine light is on all the time? They have no way to turn it off. The closest they can get is, Daddy, God, chest compressions. My heart is hurting. Pops of air. I got the wind knocked out of me by fear and guilt and shame and performance and condemnation. You see why I'm passionate about this? Because I know a real world like that exists, friends. You can't talk me out of it. I deal with it every week. Every single week. Daddy's response was not just to give us chest compressions and puffs of air when the engine light came on. If so, i got to ask you a question. How would that have been anything different than the Old Covenant? That sounds like a repeated, endlessly touch-up plan. Kind of like going to the chiropractor. you got to keep coming back for touch-ups. Touch-up, touch-up, touch-up. Friends, Daddy had a much better plan than chest compressions. Daddy said, how about a new heart? Isn't that what the scripture said a little bit ago? I'm going to give them a new heart and write it on their heart and minds. Daddy has something deeper in mind than puffs of air. He said, how about the Holy Spirit? That ought to do you. But all of these promises, all of these gifts, all of these manifestations would be locked up until the appointed time. Sealed in Jesus' last will and testament, and released to us only upon His death. How many of you know that in order to release the contents of a last will and testament, that it's necessary to prove the death of the testator? That's the one who made the will. How many of you know? you got to prove it first, right? 
He just can't come into the office and say, my uncle Johnny died and like to see what's in his will. They're going to say, well, do you have a death certificate? You got to give them a death certificate. But where, where would the early church have gotten a death certificate from? There were no vital records offices back then. Where are they going to get something like this? And so it was the death certificate written on a plaque and nailed above Jesus' head on Calvary's cross. You know what it read? It read Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. You want a death certificate? There it is. You see that lifeless body hanging there? Tells you who it is. It's Jesus the Nazarene. And I love how Pilate had it written, Jesus the Nazarene, in terms of a definite article, meaning the one and only, friends. He didn't have it written, Jesus a Nazarene. He didn't have it written, a king of the Jews. He had it written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. And to make sure that everyone understood who the man in the middle was, Pilate had the inscription written in Hebrew and in Latin, and in Greek. In other words, Jesus' death certificate was written in every language that would behold his body on the cross. Everybody that was present spoke one of those languages, friends. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 28, we find these words. It says, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. Come on. <laughs> that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. We're talking about covenant this morning, friends. And the scriptures say that he died to set us free. That means they held us in bondage at one time. They held us captive at one time. But Jesus shed his blood as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Next scriptures. In the case of a covenant, come on now, in the case of a will, some versions say, in the case of a testament, some versions say, it's all the same thing. In the case of a covenant, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a covenant is only in force only when somebody has died. It never, come on, it never takes effect while the one who made it is living. Never. Never takes effect while the one is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. The type and shadow that we were talking about in the, under the old covenant required the sacrifice of bulls and goats, pigeon doves, all kinds of animals. But there had to be a shedding of blood. Friends, we can be assured that the covenant that we're under will never expire because we have this great promise that Jesus died once for all. Now, when Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, you know what he did? Look what he did. He took the blood of calves. Why? Because Christ wasn't there at that moment yet physically. So he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people he said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, it says, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Come on. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. I had a friend the other day say to me, Mark, do you think there's any other way to be saved other than by grace? How I many you know I had to get back to him on that one? No, you know I didn't, right? I said, no, friend, there's no way to be saved other than by his grace. He said, are you sure of that? I said, I'm absolutely positive. There's no way to be saved but by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and then it's by his grace that he transfers everything that's in him and on him into us and on us, friends. It says, it was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Next scriptures. I love this. It says, for Christ 
did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again. I don't know about you. I don't even like revolving doors. They make me kind of dizzy walking through those things. And can you imagine this again and again? All you see is a revolving door. You stand inside of it and somebody just keeps pushing and you just keep walking in a circle. That's again and again, friends. There's no way out. Imagine a revolving door with no entrance. Imagine a revolving door with no exit, friends, that you just grind at the mill all day long. No way out. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. In other words, he's saying this is what the ritual is for the high priest. And he loved doing it. He loved being called by God. He was serious about his work. But you can see, friends, the sufficient provision was not there for forgiveness forever, for one time for all. Next scriptures. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination. That's the wrap-up, friends. That's the grand finale, friends. The culmination. When everything comes together, it says he appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages. Look at what it says now. To do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Friends, we got to get beyond this mentality. I had a friend the other day that was saying to another friend, he said to him, you're a saint and a sinner. I said, no, he's not. In fact, I had just been talking to the guy he was talking to, oh, an hour or two before that. It was funny because we were on that subject and I was explaining to him, you are not both at the same time. And this other friend started saying, yeah, you're both of those things. And I said, no, you're not. Why? Because your sins have been done away forever. Is that what the scripture says? It says, Christ appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages, past tense, to do away with sin. To do away with sin. Are you just talking about the past tense? No, all sin, friends, for the believer. By the sacrifice of himself. Next scriptures. Just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time. Love this, not to bear sin. Your sins have been taken away. He's not coming to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Come on, and amen can belong right in there somewhere. Amen. Friends, the plaque above Jesus' head may have read Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews, But according to Romans chapter 11, the Gentiles were grafted into the olive tree also. Jesus is more than king of the Jews. In fact, Jesus is more than king of the Gentiles. Jesus is king of the world. This whole world belongs to him. He died for the world. The Bible says, for God so loved what? The Jews? God so loved what? The Gentiles? No. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus is the king of the world. Friends, the old covenant drafted man. The new covenant grafted man. Do you see the difference? It's about your will. It's about your desire to come into this covenant. You don't have to be drafted in. You see, grace doesn't draft you, friends. When you get drafted, I don't care if you want to go or not. It doesn't matter what your will is. You get drafted, you're gone, friends. But grace doesn't do that. The breath of fresh air that breathes on you and blows on you and begs you and calls you to come to Him will knock into your final moments, friend. No one is so dead that their breath cannot be restored. Come on. No one is so dead. Uh, I've seen too much in my life. I've watched God save people that I thought when I was done... God, Daddy, how did that just happen? They seem so far away one moment and so lit up the next. It's healthy to remember that, that no one is so dead that their breath cannot be restored. 
No one has gotten beyond the reach of grace, the breath of life. You are more than a CPR dummy and you are more than a clothing store mannequin. You have been grafted into the vine. You are more than a bowl full of marbles. You are more than empty calories and twisted logic. You are more than just some sort of wild olive shoot. You are more than toxic smoothies and meaningless graffiti, friends. You are more than a pile of dirt. The Father had more in mind for you than a mixture gospel. The Father had more in mind for you than saying, here, here's a tote of ornaments. Go ahead and decorate the cross. The Father had more in mind for you than to say, oh, good news, oh, bad news. Sorry, I don't know where I'm at. The Father had more in mind for you and me than just chest compressions and puffs of air. You see, through the death of His Son, Jesus, He has given us a new heart. And He has given us the sweet, precious Holy Spirit. You are the Father's handiwork. You are the Father's finished work. And you are the Father's work of grace. The breath of life. In Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, we find these words. This is what Paul wrote. He said, Do you not know, brothers and sisters? For I am speaking to those who know the law. In other words, Paul is saying, Look, I want to talk to anybody that would say, Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about, Paul, because I know the law. And he says that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example... By law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. Folks, I have some very close friends. I'll even throw myself in this pool here, okay? And many of us have spent years, some even decades, living alone because we had gone through a divorce, and we were never taught that the main point of these scriptures was not about divorce and remarriage. These scriptures are about being released from the husband that we were once bound to. His name is Mr. Law. Next scriptures. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even if she marries another man. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law. Come on now, did you hear this? So he's drawing this, this analogy, this metaphor, if you will, to take you to this point that it's not just about marriage. He's wanting us to see that we've died to the law. He says, so my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now, I love that part, but now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we can serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Is that what it says? There are three characters in this narrative. Mr. Law, Mr. Grace, and you. Me. Us. We. Yeah, that's right. Mr. Law, Mr. Grace, and us. Now, someone has to die in order to be released from the law of marriage. Paul just said that in his opening statement there. Mr. Law did not die, friends. Mr. Grace is the one who died. When Mr. Grace died, we died with Christ. He took us into death with Him. Our death with Him allowed us to have the authority to marry another, and that another is Jesus Christ. Can you see that? The Bible calls Mr. Law perfect. Now, in Mr. Law's defense, let's not beat him up, okay? Because he's perfect. He's holy. He's righteous. So in his defense, 
I want to say this. Mr. Law doesn't beat his wife. He's not a wife beater, friends. Nor is he mean to his wife. But he sure does make her work. Mr. Law is demanding and a fault finder. Mr. Law is rigid and he gives no grace. He's rules without relationship. He is rigid and not warm. You want to be married to someone like that? Come on. I don't want to be married to anybody like that. The greatest need that the bride of Christ has, or any human being has, is love. Love. And unfortunately, Mr. Law could not fulfill that need. He couldn't meet that need, friends. But Mr. Grace could. You know how he did it? He demonstrated his love for us in this while we were yet sinners, while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Isn't that beautiful? Demonstration of this love. Said, I'll put a ring on your finger. Mr. Law is not going to die. I'm going to die. And you're going to die in me. Remember, Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. In Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 1 through 14, we find these words. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. I don't know what you, what you see there. That's a horror film to me, man. Oh, man, Ezekiel is seeing this by the Spirit, almost being transported, if you will, to the valley full of bones. And then it says, He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? Come on. What would you have said? Well, I, <laughs> I guess we could do anything through Christ. He said, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. And then he says, I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. You see that, friends? I'm going to make breath enter you and you will come to life. These bones are physically dead, friends. There's people, they call them the walking dead. They're so dead in their emotions, but it's still the same process. It's the breath of life being breathed on them, and then they come to life. It comes in the form of a revelation, not necessarily a windstorm, friends. Then he says, I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied. Come on. See, he's building up his courage now. He's building up his faith right now. And so it says, so I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise. There was a rattling sound. And the bones came together, bone to bone. And as I was imagining this yesterday, I couldn't help but think how many people walked through that same valley over the years, kicking those bones all over the place, out of the way, so your thigh bone is on Mr. Johnson's thigh bone down yonder, kicking those bones out of the place. But God knows exactly which bones belong to you. And that's why there was a rattling noise, friends. The bones were all mixing with one another till they got to their rightful destination and there they connected a rattling sound and the bones came together bone to bone you want to see that film don't you you want to see that don't you sometime I sure do Ezekiel said I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them now you know this is a God thing right those are long gone friends if you're down to bare bones the tendons and the flesh long gone they go before the bones right he said, I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. 
I'm telling you today, friends, the breath that you've got in you is more powerful than you know. You begin to prophesy in your situations. Prophesy over your family. Prophesy over your children. Prophesy. Speak it in the air. Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So, I prophesied as he commanded me. And guess what happened? Come on, breath entered them. Does that surprise you? Shouldn't. We got to get beyond being surprised, friends. Get into just the thankful mode, friends. When Jesus held the two fish and the five loaves before the Father, he wasn't surprised at what the Father did. He was just thankful for what the Father did. He knew the Father was going to meet the need. Whether he knew detail for detail how it was going to happen, it didn't matter. But Jesus wasn't surprised because he knew he had a covenant with his Father. He knew that he had communion with his Father. And if his father said something and his father was the one who had the idea, he said, son, just give thanks. Give thanks. So I prophesied as he commanded and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, our bones are all dried up. They're all dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Do you hear this language? This language is the same language, unfortunately, that's coming out of our mouth today. Why? Because we're reaching back into an old covenant and we're grabbing some of that stuff and we're bringing it over here and we don't understand what belongs to us. And so this rhetoric comes out of our mouths. We've lost faith. We're just spitting out jargon is all it is. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I love this part. I will put my spirit in you and you will live. I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. Now, let me ask you a question, friends. Was it the dry bones idea to bring themselves back to life? No, it wasn't their idea. They're dead. They don't have any ideas. And life wasn't our idea either, friends. The scriptures tell us that he chose us in him before the creation of the world. And how did he choose us to be holy and blameless in his sight? In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will to the praise of the glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Let me ask you another question. Did the dry bones contribute anything in their coming together? Did one skeleton head say, uh, excuse me, that's not my foot. No, no, I know it's ridiculous, isn't it? But did they contribute in any way? No. It was the work of the Spirit, the prophesying of the Spirit. And you and I don't do anything to contribute to our coming together either, friends, or staying together. I want to remind us of the words that you're looking at there on the screen that the prophet Ezekiel ended this passage of Scripture with when he wrote, I have done it, declares the Lord. You thought you did it. Turns out you're wrong. God said, I've done it all. And I'm not only saying that in a passive sense, I'm making a declaration. Doesn't it say declares the Lord? I did this. 
I put you together. I put the breath of life in you. Why? By grace, through faith. Friends, we are more than a gunny sack full of dry bones. We are more than a lifeless pile of dirt on the valley floor. Our hope is not gone. We will never be cut off. The psychiatric ward is not our home. Heaven is our home. The Father has opened our graves and has brought us up and out of our guilt and our shame and our fear and our condemnation. And he's brought us out of our very dry places. I've come by today to tell us that you will not die, but you will live and you will declare the works of the Lord, friends. That it was not by might and that it was not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. I'm talking about the spirit who massages our heart and inflates our lungs with grace, the breath of life. Friends, our lives in Christ are not about commandments and compressions. Our lives in Christ are about covenant and communion. He has put prophecy in our mouths so that we might prophesy to those who have been slain with an old covenant mindset, to those who have been slain with a mixture mindset, with those that have been slain with a, I need to keep the commandment mindset. He said, prophesy to those people. I'm talking about those that are slain with this, I need compressions all the time mindset. What is our message to them? Come, breath. Not just from the four corners of the earth, but from one source, the Holy Spirit. But breathe into the four corners of the earth that they that are slain might live and stand properly before the Lord and before all. My closing thoughts. Just before His crucifixion, Jesus would meet with his disciples in the upper room. There he would break bread. There he would drink from the cup. Let me ask you a question. What was the Last Supper meal all about? What was it about? Jesus is on his way to the cross. He's just steps, moments in front of the cross. Yet he takes time to spend time with his disciples and to show them things that they had never seen him do before, like wash feet. What was that Last Supper about? It was about covenant, and it was about communion, so that when he was crucified, they could look back and go, that's what he was trying to show us. See, we're so hard-headed sometimes, we just don't get it. We just don't get it at first. Jesus plainly told the disciples about his imminent death on the cross, a death whereby his body would be broken and his blood spilled out. But the greater truth that Jesus wanted his disciples to see in the communion meal was that his sacrifice would usher in the new covenant of grace, the breath of life the covenant whereby God has made us clean once for all. My final scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23-26. through 26, Very familiar communion scriptures. The Apostle Paul would write these words. He would say, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread. On the night He was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, what did he say? He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You see, Jesus is looking to the cross, friends. They can't see it just yet, but they'll get it later. He's speaking of the cross here. The body and the blood on the cross. 
And then it says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Friends, the cross does not require any garnishings or flavor enhancers in order to boost the visual impact of the sacrifice of Christ. On the cross, He was dressed in love. On the cross, He was dressed in mercy. On the cross, He was dressed in covenant and communion. On the cross, He was dressed in grace, the breath of life. From the cross, our Jesus' words had finally been fulfilled. This is my body, which is for you. Do you see me? This is the new covenant in my blood. Proclaim my death by taking and eating. Proclaim my death by drinking my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Friends, our embellishments added to Jesus' finished work of grace are no more than a tote full of decorations and ornaments hung by our own hands. They are our pitiful attempt to overlay what God has made available through grace, the breath of life. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message today are these. When the mixture gospel is preached, it power washes the cross of its blood. The mixture gospel is the blending of the old covenant with the new covenant. Oh, it appeals to our decorating talents. It busies us with the lacing of lights and the tossing of tinsel and the orchestration of ornaments. But it leaves us holding hands with two husbands, Mr. Law and Mr. Grace. Friends, the mixing of the Old and New Covenant devalues the sacrifice of Jesus and demoralizes our wedding vows to Christ. Friends, you and I are more than an unresponsive CPR dummy that requires chest compressions and puffs of airs. We are more than a lifeless clothing store mannequin. You know, always standing at attention and never finding rest. You and I are more than dry bones without breath on the floor of the valley. You and I are more than revolving door worshipers seeking annual cleansing. May I remind us today that we have been cleansed once for all, not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit of grace, saith the Lord, the very breath of life. Friends, you and I, we're not made for the psychiatric ward. We have the mind of Christ. We were not made to substitute milk for white paint. And we were not made to substitute relationship for rules. To do either is toxic. It's inedible. It's repulsive. And it's disrespectful to the cross of Christ. Friends, we are under the new covenant of grace. The covenant that takes us by the hand, not by the hair. The covenant that remains faithful even when we are faithless. I'm talking about the covenant that never, ever, ever finds fault with us. The covenant that remembers our sins no more. I'm talking about the covenant that came into being when the testator of the will, the last will and testament died. That covenant. You see, friends, not only was Jesus nailed to the cross, but you and I were nailed also. Not only were you and I nailed to the cross, but the written code was nailed also. And not only was the written code nailed to the cross, but the death certificate was nailed also. Pontius Pilate had crucified an innocent man, but Pilate refused when asked to remove the plaque that had Jesus' name written on it in three languages. He said, I'm not going to do it. It was written there for all to see in Hebrew. 
in Latin and in Greek. Pilate would make his final announcement and then have it nailed above Jesus' head. It read, Jesus, the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. But because of the new covenant, it's not just Jesus, the King of the Jews, and it's not just King of the Gentiles, it's King of the world. That's who he is. Why did Jesus do this for us? Because the first covenant, perfect though it was, did not contain sufficient provision for the forgiveness of sin. It was merely the precursor, a type and shadow, if you will, of the gospel of grace, the breath of life. Father, we thank you so much. We breathe out the Spirit. We breathe in the Spirit. Father, help us to get beyond this mentality where we need chest compressions on a daily basis because our heart seems like it's about to fail. Help us to get beyond calling for puffs of air. We have the Holy Spirit who is the breath of air. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, that we stand, but we don't stand motionless. We're not like some clothing store mannequin that just pointing off into Neverland. No, we stand in Christ. And in Christ, our message is the old covenant has been made obsolete. Please, find out what's there. Leave it behind. Come to Christ. Let him massage your heart. It's about communion with him. It's about covenant with him. And I thank you, Father, that nothing can destroy that covenant. Nothing can destroy that communion. Father, you are so good. You are so amazing. I stand in awe of you today. And I do what Jesus did as he fed the multitudes. I just say, thank you. Thank you a million times over, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.